0: Welcome to Coming From Left Field where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host Greg Gottles and Pat Cummins. The Middle East is in the news again. Civilian casualties in Gaza are mounting and Israeli analysts are talking about mowing the grass to justify their strategy. But who really controls U.S. foreign policy in the region? How did Israel transform from a European colony to a U.S. power projection platform? Let's discuss. Well, welcome. Welcome to the podcast, Greg and Stephen. I'm excited to have you on our discussion today, especially with what's going on in the mid in the middle east and your latest book on israel so um i hope you are going to be able to shed some good observations on on what what is going on there and uh, for by way of introduction uh, steven is an independent political analyst from ottawa and author author of several acclaimed books recent books uh the long war, war in syria is 2017 a book on uh Korea's struggle, uh, patriots, traders, and empires, 2018, and the book that we just uh, just finished reading. This book here is called Israel, uh, Beachhead in the Middle East, and it is an extensive look at Israel. And as I said, very, very timely. So, welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you. Good. So, um, I. I Need to give you a little bit about my background. I know you know Greg very well, and I would call myself a, 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 a Rachel Matta liberal who reads the New York Ooh. Times and Ooh. and and, uh, and has been taken on a really wonderful ride by my friendship with uh, Greg. Uh, and I'm seeing things differently, and it's an exciting part of my transformation. And to that. To that point, your your book just completely changed my the way in which I thought about the Middle East and the conflict and the history, and uh, it it uh, it had me reframe that in a very positive way. And I thank you for that. Um, tell me a little bit about um, about your book. Give me a give me a summary and and and. Let's start talking about Israel and the Middle East.
1: Okay, well, I should tell you about the reason the book was written. It was really a book that my publisher, uh, Robin Philpot, who runs Baraka Books, um, asked me to write. And the reason he asked me to write it was because of a concern he shared with me, which was that there was this growing view or maybe I shouldn't say growing view, but there was a view that U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy or U.S. Middle East policy had been hijacked by Israel and by the Jewish lobby in the United States. Um, and, and that was a liberal view. I mean, there's certainly a liberal view. There is uh, Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer who had um, advanced that thesis quite visibly. And Robin thought or wanted to do a book that uh, examined that argument and refuted it. Um, so that was the raison d'être for the book. Uh, but the way I approached it was and I like to approach contemporary issues in historical perspective. So I approached it by looking at Zionism, political Zionism, and particularly the problem that political Zionism was trying to address. And I contrasted political Zionism with another movement which was trying to address the same problem that political Zionism which was, trying, was trying to address, namely anti-Semitism. And that alternative movement was one that I called the movement for universal equality originating in the French Revolution and then extended uh, by the Bolshevik Revolution. So it was a movement um, that essentially takes the universalism or universal equality that's latent in liberalism and tries to realize it So I went from that as the origin looking at well, really, the book was structured around the conflict between those two movements or themes so Zionism as one approach to resolving the problem of anti Semitism and the movement of universal equality as an alternative approach. And then I look at how those two approaches um, interact with each other uh, over time. looking at the role that Israel plays as well in uh, U.S. foreign policy and how Israel becomes an instrument of U.S. foreign policy uh, rather than U.S. foreign policy being an instrument of Israel as some liberals would like to contend.
0: And that was, I think, the. That was my 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 takeaway, uh, a reversal of what I was thinking when I look at this Middle East conflict. It was often defined as these 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 crazy religious people who are um, can't really be reasoned with, and here we have a democracy in the Middle East. It struggles and it's but it still is this this wonderful democracy. And it's the only anecdote that we have to deal with this mass, um, you know, hysterical groups of of people. But what what your book did such a good job with is show how Israel is truly a beachhead. It is truly a a a, a jumping off point for our particular interest in the Middle East. Our um, Imperialist ambitions, and that the, the 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 craziness of the Arabs was often those that were in count, were in contradiction with our policy. That these were uh, people who had a lot more socialist uh, point of view. Um, uh, they were rejecting our constant expansion that was used in a symbiotic way with. Israel and the United States. Did I, did I get that kind of right? Yes, you did. And that was, (laughs) you know, that's, that's, that's the thing that I, that I think is what was such a nice, nice transformation uh, with, with your book and how you laid that out that it is. uh, uh, Okay. The Jewish lobby strong, but the gun lobby strong. (laughs) The, the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce lobby is strong in this country. I mean, there's a lot of strong lobbies, but to suggest that they are manipulating our foreign policy, we have mutual benefits that are being realized. Uh, you no, know, it's
2: uh, it's interesting the uh, th- this this thing that you're fighting, this notion that uh, there's this Jewish lobby. Uh, most of the polls have shown for a long, long time that. Um, there's either skepticism or absolute rejection of that among the Jewish community itself. The the community itself doesn't buy that ultra Zionist position at all. In fact, the Jewish community, I I don't like the word community, but the Jews in America have been among the most progressive elements historically in in our uh, political life. And so this, this kind of thing always, I'm glad Stephen's doing this because it frames it in an international way in terms of US imperialism and the role of Israel in, in maintaining that and so on. When I first came around the left in the 60s and 70s, one of the things I learned from the Marxist left was that the U.S. imperialist, U.S. imperialism had these, he calls them beachheads, but they had these, these cops around the world. Israel was a cop in the Middle East. Iran was a cop in the Middle East for the U.S. Taiwan was a cop in the, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And you know every, every continent, every area of geopolitical interest had a U.S. cop there. And if I understand Stephen correctly, I think that's kind of the notion that he's, uh, he's putting forward in terms of framing it in terms of U.S. imperialism.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. and as I said, I'd like to look at these things in historical perspective. And if you go back to the history of political Zionism, which was led by Theodore Herzl, who was an Austrian Jew, in the latter part of the 19th century. Um, His argument was that if you wanted to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine, you needed the support of an imperialist power, because you couldn't just go to Palestine and create a a Jewish state, you'd have to have some kind of sponsorship. So how would the political Zionists um, secure the sponsorship of an imperialist power? Well, they would do that by offering to act on its behalf. I mean, that was quite clear in in the plans of of political Zionism, that they were going to become the servant of some political power and be the steward of that imperialist power's interest in West Asia. Um, And so the political Zionists went to all of the capitals of Europe and proposed their plan. Um, Eventually, uh, they managed to enlist the support of the British And once Israel was established, they then uh, managed to secure the support of the French who probably provided them with uh, the means and the know-how to develop nuclear weaponry. And then eventually the United States became their principal sponsor. But that has been the theme right from the very birth of political Zionism was that a Zionist state in the Middle East would look after the interests of its imperialist sponsor was always right from the beginning intended to be an instrument of imperialism.
0: Yeah, that was that was that was an interesting point about how this just didn't this wasn't just this you know it it, it came from considered structured reasoning of how are we going to survive how are we going to have this state work and and Herzl was the one that sort of orchestrated that that plan how do
2: how do how do you, how do you, how do you uh, fit that into the uh, the creation of israel i mean historically now we're moving forward it's 1945 and we have this emerging battle between the zionists that are in palestine and the british who are fighting them who are actually resisting uh because they were the early sponsors what what has changed and you of course uh regrettably i think the soviet union was one of the early sponsors of of Israel. So what happened in that era?
1: Well, there was a struggle. Um, (laughs) The Palestinians had figured out, the Arabs of of Palestine had figured out that the Jewish immigration and the British sponsorship of a homeland in Palestine meant that they would be displaced and dispossessed. Um, So the Palestinians struggled against that, to the point that the struggle started to become intolerable for the British who were engaged in the conflict um, at the time. And so at that point, uh, you know, there's an interesting parallel here uh, between what was going on between um, the Jewish settlers and the indigenous people of Palestine and then the colonial power, Britain. And what was happening in the United States, the US history. I mean, right from the birth of the United States where you have settlers from Europe, settlers from Britain coming to this land in America um, and uh, engaged in struggles against the indigenous people. And you have this movement to expand westward beyond the Alleghenies and the British colonial power saying, we're no longer interested in spending money and um, you know suppressing the indigenous people um, so what we're going to do is we're going to prevent you from expanding beyond the alleghenies and then we have the settlers in the united states rising up against the colonial power which becomes you know the, the war of independence but so you see an exact well, I wouldn't say exact, but there's a a parallel here um, in Palestine and you see other parallels elsewhere, for example, in Rhodesia, where you have British settlers in in Rhodesia and um, the the original colonial country, Britain, um, not wanting to mediate this dispute anymore between its settlers and uh, the indigenous people and those settlers then rebelling against Britain. Or (laughs) the other parallel would be with Algeria, um, with the settlers in Algeria uh, refusing to um, follow directives coming from Paris about resolving uh, the struggle that was going on between the indigenous people and the settlers. so that's what it was. I mean, it was uh, Palestinians launching a struggle against the designs of the British to establish a Jewish homeland in, in, in Palestine.
0: Well, let me go back to my the, the change in how I view this and how your book helped me change my thoughts on this. I'm a big fan of Sam Harris. I love his podcast. I, I Give him five bucks a month per patriot, and I. Uh, and he has he did a, a podcast back in 2014 that says why I don't criticize Israel. It was a little ask me anything 14 minute short podcast, and the gist of his his theory was that sure Israel does some bad things, and sure Israel is. Um, deserves some criticism. But the bottom line is that they are democracy and if you look at the Palestinians, they have this religiosity, this, this viral religiosity that um, makes them unreasonable to the point that uh, they they just uh, um, th- that you know they, they have, children in front of them as they're having their weapon, you know, shooting off their rockets and Israel wouldn't do that, but they are different. They are the other. And I remember listening to that and thinking, you know, boy, he's got a, he's got a good, he's got a good point. And I re listened to that podcast a week ago and I, I was just appalled (laughs) at how clearly they are framing this sort of crazy Arab uh, metaphor as a mechanism for doing horrible things. And if you look at the New, uh, the Washington Post today, uh, Nikki Haley is quoted as saying, "We must stand against Israel against the terrorist." Well, okay, just might as well go home. You know, they're they they are they're the other. You know, they they can't be reasoned with, and what what are your thoughts about how that has been framed as a mechanism for this this power imbalance that we find ourselves in
1: well i mean one of the first questions to ask is why is it that anyone thinks that israel is a democracy
0: yeah i don't, yeah.
1: I don't understand why people think it, <laughs> israel is a democracy
0: it's a faith driven ethno <laughs> Ethno state, yeah, uh, uh,
1: yes. So I, I guess I'm just being a little disingenuous here. I mean, I guess the reason they believe that is within certain boundaries there are elections, and those elections can also involve um, Palestinians uh, who are part of the who are considered Israeli citizens. But I mean, I think it, to look at Israel, you have to look at the territory that Israel controls and i mean if you're a a settler colonial state which is what israel is it's always been a settler colonial state and although some people like to dismiss that now or not dismiss it but contest that idea if you go back um, to the roots of political zionism all of the political zionists were quite clear that they were engaged in a project of settler colonialism they didn't try to hide that fact they were quite upfront about it so it's a a settler colonial state. So there are two things you can do in settler colonialism. Either you can have a non-democratic state in which the minority, which are the settlers, rule or or regard the natives as second-class citizens Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and don't provide them with the political voice, which was done in certain places, such as South Africa. Or you can construct a majority for your ethnic group, And that's what the the Zionists chose to do. They chose to create a majority within a certain territory. So they have, as of 1967, they have control of all of historic Palestine, including the Golan Heights. And within that territory, what they've kind of done is gerrymandered this territory where there is a Jewish majority. And within that territory there is suffrage and so they can say well we have a democracy because within this territory um, we have elections and political parties but there's also another part of that territory the territory that they control which they call what the disputed territories or the occupied territories of the west bank and gaza these are still under israeli control but they are denied suffrage So the only way in which they can have the so-called Jewish democracy is through this process of demographic engineering. They had to engineer a majority. And initially in 1947, 1948, the way they engineered the demographic majority was through a process of ethnic cleansing, of expelling as many Palestinians as they possibly could, and then preventing their repatriation
0: and that was that was a plan that was clear it didn't didn't we just find out more uh, facts about that in the last month or so that that was an absolute policy made clear at the beginning that that's what they were going to be doing expelling as many as they can and trying to control the democratic process through yes yeah, so- and very aggressive gerrymandering
1: yeah, the, the, um, the Israeli historian Ayan Pape wrote a famous book called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine uh, about that. But so, this idea that there's a democracy, uh, some have pointed out, yeah, it's a democracy for Jews in an Arab state, or not, in a Jewish state for the Arabs, or what others have called a Heron Vogue democracy, a democracy for the master race or for one particular ethnic group to the exclusion of others. But if you talk about democracy, it's, it's interesting in 1947, before the UN um, introduced its plan to partition Palestine, there were a group of people who we could say were partisans of this movement uh, for universal democracy. In fact, they were communists and they met, the so-called Commonwealth Parties Conference met in 1947, and they wrote uh, an analysis, a very brief analysis of what was going on in Palestine, which if I read today was very insightful and still resonates to this day. Back in 1947, they said that the United States planned to exploit Palestine as a strategic base to protect its interests in the Middle East against the interests and the rights of the peoples of the Middle East. And they said that the United States and Britain were using Zionism in pursuit of a policy to divide and rule to pit Jews against Arabs they went on to say that that zionism seeks to to make palestine a jewish state as an ally of imperialist powers and as their outpost in the middle east (laughs) yeah or apropos of that netanyahu in a book he wrote described israel as an outpost of the west Um, they also said that zionism puts jews in the position of being an instrument of imperialist powers in the Middle East in opposition to the struggles for national liberation. And they added that that Zionism diverts Jewish people from the real solution to the problem of anti-Semitism. The real solution in their view wasn't to separate Jewish people uh, you know, in this kind of some say, uh, taking the, the Jewish ghetto from Europe and placing it in someone else's land in Palestine. But the real solution was along the lines of democratic development and full equality of rights within the countries in which they live. So that, that was the other view of how you address the problem of anti-Semitism, not by separating Jews from, from, from Europe, but, by creating democratic societies where everyone has the same rights. And what they proposed for Palestine was the creation of an independent and democratic Palestinian state, which would guarantee equal rights of citizenship with full religious freedom and full opportunities to develop their culture to all inhabitants, Arabs and Jews. So, I mean, when people say, you know, israel is a democratic state uh, we might ask well you might think it's a democratic state but what about a state which is a unitary state a state for arabs and jews where all people have the same rights which is a democratic that would be a truly democratic state would it not far more democratic than one in which only provides um, democracy to some, you know, to within a, an ethnic, ma- only in the case where you have a majority of Jews are you providing a democracy and then you're providing a Jewish state for everyone else.
0: Right, right.
1: In fact, one of the groups, uh, Palestinian groups, which has dismissed and demonized as a terrible terrorist group, the Uh, popular front for the liberation of Palestine, which is regarded officially as a terrorist group by the US government and many Western governments. Mm -hmm. What's its program for Palestine? Its program is to establish a secular democracy on the land of historic Palestine with equality for all of its peoples, all of its peoples, all of the people who live there, Arabs and Jews. That seems to me to be a model of democracy. That would be a democratic state. Uh, what people call Israel, or what Israel is, is far from a democratic state. At least, in my estimation.
0: Right, right. the the other The other insight that you provided me with your book was, again, going back to this Sam Harris of this these sort of you know crazy religious religious people that can't be reasoned with. In fact, it's this new conservative religious groups in. Israel that are pushing uh, um, pushing this politics. Uh, the uh, it, it would almost call them Jewish ISIS. You know they're they're, they're very fundamentalists. They think that God gave them the land. They're very rigid in their thinking, and that that uh, that group is the ones that are really driving some of these horrible Jim Crow policies and dehumanizing the Palestinians because it comes from this foundational religious belief. And did I describe that correctly? Um, I might
1: disagree with you a bit about that one. I mean, okay. political Zionism was never a religious movement. It was always a secular movement and it was a secular movement founded by secular Jews who most of them had, In fact, when political Zionism arose, most Jews had abandoned Judaism as a religion.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, But Judaism as a religion has evolved and grown stronger within Israel over time. And it has been used as a justification for Israel. And I think one of the reasons for that is this, Zionism collapses if there's no anti Semitism. Zionism depends on the existence of anti Semitism. If you can point to a world in which anti Semitism has over, been overcome, then Zionism collapses mm-hmm. uh, as an argument. Um, and the consequence of that is that Zionists always have to point to anti Semitism. Being rampant somewhere, or if it's not rampant, then it's latent. In fact, even Herzl had argued that anti Semitism exists in every country. It's, it's It can never be overcome, it's permanent. And if you can't see it, that's only because it's latent and uh, something will bring it to the fore. But it's difficult to make that argument that there is a widespread rampant anti Semitism, especially if you're. A US Jew, um, because Jews in the United States are the most successful ethno religious minority in the United States. There may be some anti Semitism, but it's at a very low level, and American Jews have thrived. Um, so it's difficult, therefore, to point to anti Semitism as a problem that uh, justifies Zionism um so once you address that problem you come upon the weakness of zionism which is you could say okay well fine if you believe that anti-zion or that anti-semitism exists and that zionism is a solution and you want to pursue that as a solution to anti-semitism that's fine just as long as in pursuing that solution you do not abrogate the rights of other people you do not dispossess other people but that's what zionism does it dispossesses palestinians so how do you deal with that problem well the way to deal with that problem is to suggest that you're not dispossessing them because in fact you are the one that was dispossessed and you're simply reclaiming land that belongs Mm -hmm. um, to jews and so now you have what was a secular movement now suddenly invoking these arguments from the Bible to say that Jews have some legitimate historical claim to uh, the land of Palestine
0: so it's and not I, I, it's not it's not crazy religiosity it's crazy Zionism using this this friction uh, as a way of deriving power and and No, it's it's really about land.
2: I mean, I I think to simplify it, it comes down to uh, uh, countering the argument in this country that they're all crazy religious nuts with the notion that it really is about land. It's really about uh, a a nation, creating a nation. And it's interesting because uh, this beachhead notion or police notion that I I put forward, uh, this notion that uh, Israel is a tool of U.S. imperialism, I think it's fundamentally correct. And I think Stevens uh, uh, exposes that very well, but there's an aspect to these colonial, uh, these these folks that take over a country uh, like Palestine or the United States, or I'm sorry, the indigenous people here or South Africa, the indigenous people there and so on and so forth. They become themselves imperialist countries their designs then are up on people around them. And I think that's what you see. The contradiction, what's fed this Mersheimer view and the liberal view that uh, that uh, the tail is wagging the dog is the fact that someone like Netanyahu comes to the United States during the Obama administration and says, I don't have to talk to the president. goes right to the Congress and, you know, he just exercises muscles. And I think that's because of the imperialist element in, in, in Israel, they have to, they have, they have their own goals, uh, independent of being a watchdog for the United States. And I think that's expressed very clearly. Well, I mean, Biden now is a little bit embarrassed uh, because people are pressuring him to do something and he doesn't want to do anything. But Netanyahu says, I'll do what I want to do it. I'll, I'll stop yeah. when I want to stop. Yeah. And there's an arrogance to the, this element because these settler colonial countries develop their own imperial interests. They want more land. They want more of, of what they think belongs to them. Just as South Africa did when it invaded uh, Namibia, when it invaded Angola. They want to influence the entire region. And just as the United States did when it became a mature capitalist, uh, imperialist country as well.
0: Power imbalance in Gaza is so remarkably uh, distorted. And it is, uh, I, I I don't know about a better term than Jim Jim but you know you have you have almost no electricity um, medicine is ration people's mobility is not only restricted but constantly hassled as a as a as a way of you know poor life expectancy malnutrition uh, what's the unemployment rate 50 60% of youth so you yeah to then suggest that this is a a, you know kind of a both sides and let's get along it's it's not a both sides it's a, a remarkably distorted power balance that people don't talk about you know they i don't know that that's how i'm i'm seeing it what are your thoughts about that Stephen?
1: well i was thinking of an analogy to explain this and the analogy i was thinking of is imagine that Greg (laughs) tells me that or that I want to go to your house and I want to take over your house and uh, I'm going to relegate you to your basement and I'm going to live throughout the rest of your house and Greg is going to give me weapons that allow me to keep you in the basement and while I'm there Greg's asking me to take 50% of your income and to remit it to him Um, so that's a nice analogy of what's going on yeah and craig is the united states i'm the zionist the israelis and you're a palestinian so now you ask the question well why can't i get along or why can't you get along with me Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) well i mean it's pretty simple why you can't get along with me right and when you strike back it's like you're a terrorist (laughs) you're the terrorist in the basement when you do get frustrated and strike out and
1: Yes, you become the terrorist. And, but it also, I mean, I don't think that many people in the West really understand the relationship between Israel and the United States or between me and Greg. Greg's giving me my weapons, it allows me to live in your house, and I'm giving him something in return. And obviously, I'm not manipulating Greg because I think one of the things that that we don't realize is that a Jewish state on stolen land can't survive in the Arab world without imperialist support. And that's something that Israelis and Zionists have recognized right from the start. Mm -hmm. And that works out well for Washington, because Washington gets Israel to do its bidding in return for protection. It makes the Jewish state dependent upon the United States. And Israel does very many services to the United States. And that was one of the points of the book was to look at the services that Israel has done from decade after decade after decade for the United States, most of which are never recognized. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, two great services that, that Israel has done for the United States. One, it destroyed um, the nuclear reactor at Osirak in Iraq,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it destroyed a nuclear reactor in Syria in 2007. If Iraq or Syria had developed a nuclear weapons capability, there's no way the United States would have ever toppled the Saddam government in Iraq, and there's no way it would have been able to march into Syria as it's done and occupy one third of the country. I mean, even the Israelis have recognized that if those countries had nuclear weapons, there's no way in which the, there's no way the United States would be able to dominate the Middle East to the extent that it has. But these are great services that, this, that the Israelis have done. Only one of many, many services that israelis have provided to either the united states or to france and britain in the 1950s when france and britain were their sponsors
0: and cheap i mean what what how much how many billion do we spend i mean a a lot of bang for the buck we don't spend that much i i mean in relationship to other countries maybe but um what is it three billion a year that's that's not much 3.8
1: billion I think per year and and the important thing to recognize that that's about as what you'd spend on a carrier uh, strike group per year. So it's about the equivalent of investing in one carrier strike group. Um, But also what's not recognized is that who does that money go to? They say it's, you know, it's aid to Israel. Well, it's really aid to the U.S. Arms manufacturers, because that's who it goes to. It buys arms from the U.S. military-industrial complex that is then sent to Israel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's mm-hmm. a nice subsidy for, um, you know, for uh, shareholders and investors in U.S. weapons manufacturers.
0: Tell me about your thoughts about with the latest conflict in Gaza. Isn't this the very first time there's a crack in this sort of solidarity uh, uh, towards Israel? I mean, it—it's the—I, I, Huffington Post had a headline of you know this was an anomaly to have certain politicians criticizing Israel. I haven't. I. This is new, isn't it? And and where is this going?
1: Yeah, I know that's the view. I haven't been as optimistic as other people have been. Um, Because to me, I mean, this is the latest iteration. We've seen this happen in in Gaza before. Mm -hmm. Gaza gets beat up for what? How many days does it go on? Ten. And I mean, there are expressions of moral outrage around the world and indignation. And um, the Israelis uh, lose what credibility they have. And then there's a ceasefire, and everyone forgets about what happened until mm-hmm. the next time this happens and they get beat up. And then there are some more moral, I mean, expressions of moral outrage. And if you've seen this happen time after time after time, it just seems to be the same film over and over. Um, but then there are people who are encountering this for the first time. So I went to a rally a few days ago um, and it was supposed to be a, a vigil outside the Israeli embassy. And most of the people there were younger people. Most of them were Palestinian or Arab. Um, but what struck me was the, kind of the views of the people at the rally uh, because they subscribe to this this view of capitalist society the, the pluralist view of capitalist society which essentially holds that the state is neutral and there are a whole bunch of groups within the society and they pressure the state and the state acts on the basis of it uh, tries to accommodate these multiple pressures so you saw people with you know urging others to write their their representative uh, to put pressure on the government to do whatever. What In the United States, what is it to? Withdraw um, weapons and, and military aid to uh, to Israel. But, I mean, I think one of the problems with that view, well, there's a problem with the, the pluralist view of US society. I mean, of any kind of capitalist society, one that holds that the state is independent. Um, and the more realistic view is that the state is heavily influenced by those who own and control the economy and that <laughs> you can put pressure on the state from uh, from the streets and and if you have enormous pressure the state might react and the state may bend but for the most part it's not going to happen simply by uh, you know sending a letter to your to your congressman or senator. Um, and what's required, I think, is some kind of sophisticated understanding of how, I mean, a sophisticated understanding of the state, the forces which control the state, and the relationship between the US state and the Israeli state. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And what role the Israeli state serves within US foreign policy. Because once you understand that, then you might have a more effective way of changing the world. And I think the way in which people are trying to change the world now is not particularly effective because it's not predicated on any kind of sophisticated understanding of the way in which their societies work. And the way in which power is distributed, in the way in which it's exercised, and the role that Israel plays within um, U.S. foreign relations.
0: Right, right. And I—that's—I think that's—that's that's the main takeaway from your book: that these these themes, these. Um, expressions of uh, well israel is just defending itself uh it's you know has a right to to exist it has a right to that those uh, politicians have got a lot of mileage out of those but the reality is there is a very clear symbiotic mutually beneficial relationship for our own interests that are Secondary to just having wanting to have wonderful Jeffersonian democracy blossom all over the Middle East, you know, (laughs) that's, that's not what's, that's not what's going on. Um, You know, it's, it's an extension of our intrusive, um, imperialistic uh, ambitions. That's, that's, that's how I, how I saw it. And uh, you define you, I don't know. What do you think, Greg?
2: Well, I think the missing word here is capitalism. I mean, it's <laughs> that—that's what's driving U.S. foreign policy. It isn't our foreign policy; it's the foreign policy of capitalism in the United States. And uh, so, so it actually is against our interest. I mean, what 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 our politicians do is against the people's interest in the United States, and that's the message we have to try to convey. And there are many, many ways of doing it. I largely we'll agree with Stephen in terms of that's the deeper understanding. We can't always rely on the deeper understanding in a country like the United States because the media is, is distorted things so very badly. Mm-hmm. So I welcome you know all the different approaches that bring people to a greater awareness of what this is. But in the end, I agree with Stephen, until you talk about capitalism and the role capitalism plays in terms of determining this policy, you're pissing in the wind. I mean, it's right. you're 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 really not going to get anywhere. Look, I mean, what you see now as bad, what you see now as a new enlightenment or people realizing right. the role. I think it comes from the squad. Or it comes from these so-called progressive Democrats. They're essentially forced into saying something. I mean, they lose all credibility if they don't, if they don't speak to this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that seems different. But is it really different? Because it's kind of forced on them. So yeah, let's 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 welcome that and let's hope that spawns a, a lot of young people looking hard at it, reading Stephen's book. But in the end, it's yeah, it's capitalism.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the that's it's it's Lucy and the football, you know, <laughs> it just is a it constantly. You have so much hope, but ultimately uh, Lucy pulls the, the the football back from Charlie Brown. That's kind of a, I, my frustration with this. And you're right too, Greg. Is that the one of the one of the issues is how do you get good how do you get good information? And and you you don't through through the New York Times and through cable news, and you know you you have to get it through other 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 means, which. By the way, uh, Stephen, your blog is just wonderful. I uh, you are so prolific with all of your topics and timely, and um, I'll strongly recommend. I'm going to link to your blog and your book in the, the the notes on this this uh, podcast. It's something that everybody should um, subscribe to. So you that's a, and you've had that for what five six years or or more, long time, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah. (laughs) so long yeah 20
2: years i think (laughs) the years go by the years go by they do do. i
0: i noticed that you have a couple of criticisms of noam chomsky uh with his um uh, you know not being this anti-imperialist that's that's that always that always uh you know puts a, a, a knife in my heart when greg sends me articles criticizing criticizing my my wonderful gnome but uh he he deserves it i think periodically so well
1: yeah and it's not only him who was it i noticed recently it just struck me that there's still this notion uh within the u.s even among progressives that the united states has a role to play in the affairs of other people so you'll see. Usually, when I disagree with Chomsky, that's one of the reasons is that he thinks that, that the United States has a role to play. For example, it was his latest one was that the United States should intervene in Syria on behalf of the Kurds to help them establish some kind of anarchist homeland within someone else's territory. Mm-hmm. But I see this. There's this. It's, it's almost implicit. It's implicit view that. Well, I mean I think it could be criticized on two grounds but the, the, the implicit view that the United States can be a force of good in the world um, and you could criticize that on the grounds that it cannot because it's an imp- a capitalist imperialist country mm-hmm. uh, uh, perhaps it might if it wasn't uh, but there's still this notion that of a mission that the United States has. And this mission idea seems to have permeated U.S. society almost entirely. That Americans have a mission in the world. (laughs) And he certainly seems to embrace that view.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Even though perhaps he doesn't even know he has that view.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: We're lucky to have uh, Chomsky establish a uh, podium in the United States. It's so difficult for anyone on the left to be allowed into the media box, the establishment media. And Chomsky is one of the few that's allowed in from time to time. So we're lucky about that and admire the fact that occasionally Chomsky sneaks in some very good things uh, on MSNBC and other places. The truth is a consistent anti-imperialist a consistent, no. consistent anti-capitalist and consistent pro-socialist never will be in that box. Never get into that box. So we have to fight like hell to get mm-hmm. Stephen's book out and Stephen out in front of people just as we did with Michael Parenti, one of the most prolific writers, one of the best writers we've seen in our lifetime. Yet he can't get an academic position in America, in the United States. And, and he,
0: ha- he has similar very good criticisms of, you know, he, he's okay. He starts with the caveat of this guy has a a brilliant mind, his photographic memory. He's, the facts are always aligned. I agree 95%, but the 5% that he disagrees is exactly what you're, you're saying, uh, Stephen, uh, just this uh, kind of defaulting to America first, <laughs> you know, to the, 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 the power we, we, exert in other parts of the country that's often an imbalance too and uh he he has some very good criticisms too so i'm mad no, at I'm, I'm mad at noam chomsky because uh, greg and i sent him an invitation to be on our podcast and he hasn't responded back so he's on my he's on my my bad list until he does so
1: well, He he does have a lot of good stuff and sometimes people take exception to me citing anything that he does because there's some people who loathe him so thoroughly, mm-hmm. uh, but he does. I, I mean, and I've cited him and quoted him in the book we're talking about right now.
0: Right. But right. Favorably. Some, yeah.
1: Yes. And he had some good arguments to make there, but it, often he disappoints people terribly because he, he seems to be quite inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're talking about Parente. interestingly, last night I was reading an article that was written by Parente, I think somewhere around 1990, in which he was uh, complaining about Chomsky and saying, look at, Chomsky is celebrated as a person who's championing socialism, socialist views and, and you know criticism of the media and, and so more of the sophisticated analyses of US society and US. foreign policy. And yet anything that he's saying has been said before him by others um, who are ignored
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And probably for the reasons that that Greg already mentioned.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that was, you know, in my early, more than 20 years ago, when I first encountered Chomsky and I was not well versed in the work of, well, say, Marxist-Leninists. Um, and I started reading the works of Marxist-Leninists. After reading the works of Chomsky, I was suddenly struck that anything that Chomsky was saying had been said by others before him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And perhaps in many respects, in much more eloquently and much more cogently and much more articulately. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: but these are people that, we we rarely talk about anymore if we ever really noticed to begin with
0: right 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 well steven this has just been a real pleasure and i again i want to thank you for putting a little ammonia under my nose and making me (laughs) wake up a little bit and uh that was that's one of the my great joys in um as I, as I get older, is changing my opinion and thinking differently, and you you really helped me do that. And your book is just foundationally a, a must if people want to understand what's going on with Israel and it it, it, it looks at it from such a, a, a why it should be unique, I don't know. It seems obvious after you after you um, after you read it, your perspective. So thank you so much. Any other uh, topics in your new books now that you're retired and able to be a little more productive? What's your next work? The book
1: that I have a commission to write uh, is called Capitalism. Well, something like, I don't know what we're going to call it. Capitalism in Pandemics. It might be something like Capitalism as a Comorbidity or something or right. a pathology right. of capitalism. Uh, But there are a lot of interesting themes and ideas about uh, the COVID pandemic and how it has evolved and how countries have reacted to it and the role that capitalism has played.
0: Yeah, I would recommend people go to your blog, uh, your, your recent article about that, about how countries are respond differently to the epidemic based on whether or not they're capitalists, and often those that are not uh, have been much more successful. That was a very good article and a lot of detail, and uh, that would be that would be a good good place to start. I, I just finished the new Michael Lewis book, uh, Premonition. Oh, so did I. Yeah, and, and I thought I thought he did a good job in saying, this wasn't just the fact that Trump is, you know, horrible and deplorable and incompetent and you know all of that. Uh, the the foundation for our inability to respond to this were, we're well established with systemically within our system, uh, you know. And then Trump has just put the icing on top of the cake. You know, he's he he, he didn't help, but uh, you know, moving moving a lot of the positions of authority away from civil servants to political and um you know how within our systems we we failed you know we need to re- revise our, our our system and so that'll, that'll be a good a good book for you so yeah i'm looking yeah. forward to that so thank you so much well, thank you very much. And uh, this has been a real pleasure. And we'll if I'm in Ottawa, I'm gonna expect that you're going to buy me a cup of coffee if I if I get close to you. Okay.
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: All right. All right. Great bye seeing now. you,
2: Stephen. Okay. Thanks bye. so much. Uh, Bye-bye. Okay, bye bye. Bye.